Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed one another. Psalm 85, verse 10. To him who shows no mercy, the judgment will be merciless. But mercy exalts over judgment. James 2.13 In the God-man who has entered human history, God's justice and God's mercy are shown to be one thing, one action. The righteousness that condemns is also the love that restores. David Bentley Hart Welcome to Nightlight. We've been wrestling with the following words, righteousness, justice, mercy, and loving kindness. Now, we've been wrestling because our finite and limited human psyches have a very difficult time with these words, don't, don't we? We want to make the first two words into one category and the second two words into not just another category, but an opposite category. We just cannot make justice and righteousness fit with mercy and loving kindness. Even those of us who study and struggle and wrestle with these words and work hard to find some way to explain them and understand them still will find in our own hearts this split. And under certain circumstances in which we feel strongly, that wrong has been done and justice needs to happen, we will often experience inside ourselves that canyon of division. We need either justice or mercy, but they cannot be the same. This easily lends itself to a spirit of revenge, which can be disguised as righteous anger. Now, there certainly is such a thing as righteous anger. Jesus exhibited it. But after far too many years of falling into unrighteous anger, which I wanted to claim as righteous, I have backed away from being too quick to point to Jesus as my example and claim that me and him are on the same page. He can manifest true righteous anger that remains righteous all through. So far, I have not. I will not say I cannot, because I am predestined to become conformed into his image. One day, when I see him, I shall be like him. I'm destined to be free of unrighteous anger and to become a conduit of totally true, consistent justice. In other words, one day I shall be fully and completely a loving being. My love will be just and my justice will be loving. And this will be the righteousness of God fulfilled for me by saving me from myself, his righteous action, and righteousness through me by moving me to righteous deeds. I do not believe, though, that this is only going to be achieved at the resurrection. It's a process going on in me now and will continue to be worked into me all the days of my life if I keep cooperating. For being forgiven of sin is simply not enough. Let that soak in. I'm not diminishing the value of being forgiven. 
God knows none of us who has even an inkling of what we would be apart from God's intervening grace and mercy could ever take lightly the forgiveness of sin. But having said that, the forgiveness of sin is not enough. There's much more going on in the cross and through the work of the cross than just the forgiveness of sin. No human being who has ever existed will ever escape the justice of God. Think about that. Think about that when you think of crooked judges and and crooked politicians and all the other crooked things in the world, crooked drug dealers and child traffickers and pornographers and all the lists that we tend to get so angry at, and maybe rightly so. But this fact comforts us, that that fact that I just stated, that no human being who has ever existed will escape the justice of God. That comforts us if we see ourselves as victims. But it terrifies us if we know ourselves as the victimizer. The coming judgment where righteousness will be restored and justice done is far, far more than some being forgiven and others being damned. That overly simplistic misreading of Scripture has produced a shallow-minded flippancy in most of Western Christianity. A more truly scriptural understanding of righteousness and justice must include not just forgiveness, but a complete and total putting right of every wrong that has ever been done by any human being to another. There is nothing that shall not be revealed, examined, and put in order. Now, thinking of that truth until it becomes a vivid reality in our imagination is a large part of our sanctification. We need to just dwell on that. It wouldn't be bad for you to just stop listening at this point and just go back and revisit these statements until they form in, in you the vivid reality of the fact no human being who has ever existed will escape the justice of God the coming judgment where righteousness will be restored and justice done will not just include the forgiveness of sins, but a complete and total putting right of every wrong that has ever been done by any human being who ever existed. We will have boldness in the day of judgment, First John tells us, because mercy and truth have kissed each other. James tells us mercy triumphs over, celebrates victory over judgment. When truth is revealed and forgiveness and mercy are shared, then judgment has no longer any place and the result will be that evil is destroyed and only life and goodness is left. So mercy really does triumph over judgment. God does not rejoice in judging. He rejoices when love wins. Whenever love wins, justice is being accomplished at its very best. And we will return to this treasure of truth in just a bit. 
For now, let's back up and re-examine this battle we all have inside that wants to separate justice and mercy and make them not only incompatible, but actually make them opposites in antagonism to each other. Why do we have this struggle? In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis spends the first several chapters examining the observable fact that all humans have an inner sense of what ought to be. Details of our moral rule and our list of rules may vary in some secondary ways from culture to culture, but the basic fact remains and is incontrovertible. There is in all of us, no matter what walk of life we come from or what our spiritual belief system is, there is in all of us a sense of right and wrong, of moral law. This law does not provide us with any information about God as being kind or loving, It only points to the reality that whatever formed and placed us here, that power is rigidly set on right and wrong. What follows here is an extensive quote, and since I cannot improve on Lewis's words and don't want to miss anything he has to say about this, I'm going to include the extensive quote. Just keep in mind, I'm quoting for quite a while. Lewis says, We have two bits of evidence about the somebody, capital S, who is behind our existence. One bit of evidence is the universe he made. If if we use that only as our clue, then I think we should have to conclude that he was a great artist, for the universe is a very beautiful place but also that he is quite merciless and no friend to man, for the universe is a very dangerous and terrifying place. The other bit of evidence is that moral law which he has put into our minds. And this is a better bit of evidence than the universe, because it is inside information You find out more about God from the moral law than from the universe in general, just as you would find out more about a man by listening to his conversation than by looking at a house that he has built. Now, from this second bit of evidence, we conclude that the being behind the universe is intensely interested in right conduct, in fair play, unselfishness, courage, good faith, honesty, truthfulness. In that sense, we should agree with the account given by Christianity and by some other religions that God is, quote, good. But do not let us go too fast here. The moral law does not give us any grounds for thinking that God is good in the sense of being indulgent or soft or sympathetic. There's nothing indulgent about the moral law. It is hard as nails. It tells you to do the straight thing, and it does not seem to care how painful or dangerous or difficult that is to do. If God is like the moral law, then he's not soft. It's no use at this stage saying that what you mean by a good God is a God who can forgive. You're going too quickly.
Only a person can forgive. And we have not yet gone as far as discussing a personal God yet. A God who can forgive. No, the God who is behind the moral law, as far as a power behind the moral law, and is more like a mind than anything else. But it may be very unlike a person. If it is pure, impersonal mind, then there may be no sense in asking it to make allowances for you or let you off the hook, just as there is no sense in asking the multiplication table to let you off when you do your sums wrong. You are bound to get the wrong answer, and it's no use either saying that if there is a God of that sort, an impersonal, absolute goodness, then you don't like him, and you are not going to bother about him. For the trouble is that one part of you is on his side and really agrees with his disapproval of human greed and trickery and exploitation. You may want him to make an exception in your own case to let you off this one time, but you know at bottom that unless the power behind the world really and unalterably detests the sort of behavior that is wrong, then he cannot be good. On the other hand, we know that if there does exist an absolute goodness, it must hate most of what we do. Now that's a terrible fix that we're in. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, then all our efforts are in the long run hopeless. But if it is ruled by absolute goodness, then we are making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day and are not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow. And so our case is hopeless again. We cannot do without it and we cannot do with it. God is the only comfort and he is the supreme terror, the thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He is our only possible ally and we have made ourselves his enemies. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger, according to the way you react to it. And we have reacted the wrong way. End quote. Now, to only align ourselves with this aspect of God, this aspect of unalterable mind, absolute perfect order that is behind the moral order, you may begin with high philosophy if you embrace that, but you will end in harsh, cold legalism. Remember we mentioned the police inspector Javert in the story of Le Miserable. In the musical story version of Les Mis, uh, Javert sings a song to the stars. The words describe the cold, heartless, calculating legalism of a man who only knows God as divine order in his relentless and merciless pursuit of Jean Valjean, whom he thinks of only as a criminal who has broken the law and deserves nothing but punishment and death. 
He sings to the stars as his divine allies who help him crush evildoers and ever watch from the heavens to expose wrongdoing. For Javert, the universe, is the perfect, unforgiving, exacting display of divine order, and he intends to treat all human beings from the position of that cold, high, calculating, unbending order. Later, when Jean Valjean repeatedly has opportunity to kill Javert and be free of him, but instead spares his life. Javert is so shattered by love and mercy that he commits suicide. He would rather be dead than bow to mercy because mercy has triumphed over judgment. He sings as he dies that the stars he once celebrated have become dark and cold. He kills himself by clinging to the unmerciful cold rule rather than bowing to the far greater law of love. For him, God is only law. Justice is only punishment. Because there is no love, there is no greater power above keeping the rules. When love is offered, he would rather be dead than live with love triumphing over justice or love being manifested as justice. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Don't just listen to that as an off-quoted scripture that is so repeated in your thinking that it becomes disconnected from any meaning. What does it mean that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death? It means there are two laws, one a lower and one a higher One, a law that produces death. The other, a law that produces life. Obviously, the law of life supersedes and destroys the law of death. But the law of death still operates wherever the law of life is not operating. Or say it more positively, when the law of life is in operation, the law of death is canceled. The law of sin and death is a law. That is, Sin and death are certainly realities we must reckon with, obviously. And if all we have to work with is the level of law that death is operating in, that as if that, that has the final word, if, if that's all we operate in, Satan is the consummate legalist and is counting on us to operate only on that level because that's the level where he can operate. That's how he is the accuser. He is the adversary. He is the, the, the wielder of death. It takes the form of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth justice. In this realm, Satan loves to take his stance as accuser, prosecutor, and executioner. <clears throat> Whenever we agree with him, by also seeking to accuse, to prosecute, and then seek for death, we are only operating in the lower law 
realm, the realm the Bible calls darkness. And to the natural, unspiritual mind, it sounds at best unrealistic and at worst utterly stupid to speak of forgiveness and to offer life in the face of certain kinds of, of evils. We never offer life to evil. We offer life to people caught in evil. Now, we probably feel some kind of exhilaration and false sense of our own righteousness when we speak of demanding justice. I know I have. I've been guilty of it, and I'm always on the guard against it. I'm all too familiar with this rush of self-congratulation inside of me. This evil shall not go unpunished, we shout. And if indeed the only kingdom we seek is the lower kingdom, where the law of the spirit of sin and death is operating, then what Paul refers what Paul refers to as principalities and powers that that's that's the realm of sin and death where the law these are laws they operate and they operate under the power of principalities and powers of darkness uh, they'll 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 come to the support of our efforts for our level of lower justice. Every moment of every day, these demonic forces, disguised as the legal system, the economic system, the entertainment system, the educational system, the medical system, and yes, most certainly the religious system, though they may at times be tools in which good can somehow happen, that's only by grace. Ultimately, these systems are weapons of satanic enslavement, injustice, and death. Satan is the god, little g, of the world system. We who say we believe in Jesus are called to live in a higher reality. We do not deny the lower system. Of course we don't deny it. How could we deny it? It is the very enemy that we are battling, so we can't deny its existence uh, every every uh, force that we're engaged in, uh, we're, we're, we're engaged to encounter it, expose it, and overcome it. Manifesting God's victory over evil, not by more evil, not by fighting evil with evil, but by manifesting good. We do not overcome evil with evil. We overcome evil with good. This is not some weak, mamby-pamby effeminacy. It's a law of reality. You cannot overcome evil with evil. It's like bathing in mud to get rid of mud. You can only overcome evil with its opposite. That's why we forgive. Never because we're just seeking some shallow, let's all just get along religious sentimentality. It's just the opposite. The Christian is the only one who is taking evil seriously enough to recognize that on the earthly level, in the lower shadowland realm of this present darkness, there can never ever be any true justice accomplished on that level. And because the believer in Jesus knows this to be true, he or she confronts the evil as it really is resists the spirit of evil by forgiving, rescuing, and reconciling people out from the grips of that evil. 
In that process, the lower level of the law of sin and death continues to grind out its destructive products. It keeps working and will until it is finally brought to an end by the return of the king. And many suffer and die in the struggle with and against its continued daily workings. But this law of sin and death does not hold the final word on anything. Jesus has already defeated it and made its claims null and void. So no matter how it decrees unrighteous decrees and hands down unjust sentences and cuts life into pieces, it will not have any last word on any issue of life or death. The last word belongs only to the one who came down from heaven, humbled himself beneath the weight of all the world system's injustice, and taking it upon himself, then rose up out from death, and in that action tore death's fangs out, rising in total conquest over the law of sin and death. And in that ultimate cosmic event, Jesus alone made it possible for the only true justice to come into being. It will be justice which can only be manifested by mercy. To borrow from Brian Stevenson's poetic prophetic term from which the title of his excellent book of the same name came, at the end of all things there will be justice It can only be just mercy. That's why James warns us in chapter 2 that we've referred to several times. That wherever there are those who refuse to operate in mercy, their justice will be an unmerciful judgment. For this is not an angry retribution from God against them as much as it is the logical fact If mercy is rejected, that is, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, then there is only one other realm in which to operate, and that would be the the lower realm of the law of sin and death. There is no third option. So again, at the end of all things, there will be just, just, just mercy. For it is not possible for human justice to ever achieve any possibility of equality to put right and wrong in their proper place. It's not possible. Try to, try to imagine some scenario where it might happen. Where mere material possessions are concerned, yes, I'll concede that, that, that which can be quantified and given a monetary price tag, then yes, I can pay you back for your lost cow, by replacing it with my living cow. And even that can never be totally perfectly equal, can it? Because we don't know all the different details. But where the unfathomable, irreplaceable preciousness of human life is concerned, the execution of the murderer is no justice. It may be a necessary earthly manifestation of right action by the law enforcement, according to Romans 13, to seek to stem the growth of evil on a shallow level, but it is not stemming real evil, and it is in no way bringing balance to the scales of justice. It cannot restore the broken heart or return the taken life 
or mend the shattered memory or cleanse the bitter rage going on in the souls of all concerned. The only hope for justice is just mercy. There's a Nightlight article that was written back in 2010 that addresses this very subject in a very meaningful and profound way taken from an original story written by Chuck Colson and found in the book The Body. I want to read it to you in its entirety because it will illustrate exactly what we're talking about when the law of the spirit of life supersedes what seems to be the just law but it's only a law that produces death. And because it's a law that can only produce death, it cannot ultimately be just. Just laws that are truly just produce life, not death. Christ has demonstrated that fully in his cross and resurrection. Just listen to the story. A true story. Bob McAllister didn't have to take time from his prestigious world to enter the other world, which he had come to care for so deeply. The South Carolina State Penitentiary was only a few miles from the plush mahogany and leather surroundings of his own state government office. Yet the two worlds, so close in physical proximity, could not have been farther apart. Bob served as aide to the governor, but in whatever spare time he could muster, he took a short drive and entered the long corridor that transferred him from the atmospheric heights of public success to the lowest depths of individual despair. Bob had led many a prisoner to Christ in the years of his service. He thought he had seen most of the worst, but he was not prepared for the encounter he had one Friday night in October of 1985. While making his way back through the harsh hallway after an evening of ministry to various inmates, Bob was tired and ready to get home to Carol. But he felt an urge to stop at one more cell. Its inhabitant looked like a pale, cadaverous, dirty wax wraith sitting on the cold concrete. Surrounded by strong papers, half-eaten rotted food, tissue paper, and old issues of Playboy and Penthouse. The cell stank, but its inhabitant reeked far worse. Long, dirty, blondish hair and matted beard seemed to be draped over a rubber mask instead of a human face. There was no sound or movement except one the scurrying noise of scores of roaches which were meandering uninterrupted over the prisoner's head and covering his entire body. Suddenly Bob realized that he had met this inmate before. He called him by name, attempting to rouse him into some kind of response, though Bob was not from a church background that had ever seriously given attention to such a concept Suddenly he became overwhelmed by a horrifying, invisible, but palpable presence, as if Bob had entered forbidden territory. 
this presence would not allow its victim to move or even speak. A demonic prisoner, kept in the power of its prison. Bob called on the name of Jesus to break the hold in the cell. Then he cried out to his embalmed victim, Rusty, just say the name of Jesus. Call on his name. Say his name. Nothing happened for a few minutes. Then the frozen lips moved slowly. Jesus, he whispered, Jesus, Jesus. To Bob's amazement, it was as if Rusty was slowly thawing. Son, look at what you're living in. Bob continued to speak to him, guiding Rusty to ask Jesus to bring him back to life, to cleanse his heart and mind as well as his body. As Rusty nodded his head in agreement with Bob's words, the washing began for the first time in 15 years. Cleansing streams began to drip from Rusty's newly awakened eyes. Who was Rusty? Once upon a time, there was a beautiful little blonde-headed boy who chased squirrels and watched circling hawks who laid in the grass near his favorite fishing hole, dreaming the dreams boys are supposed to dream. This was the only reprieve from his father's cruel tirades. As Rusty grew bigger and stronger, so did his anger, resulting in his leaving home. He slept in ditches and barns and learned to soothe the ache, first with weed, then with liquefied amphetamines straight into his veins. By 19, he went to state prison for stealing a case of beer. After his release, he looked for men of like nature, but always older. For even in his drug-induced stupor, he knew what his heart was longing for. He longed for a father figure. He hooked up with Scar, whom he would sometimes introduce as his father. Scar began teaching Rusty the finer points of making fast money. Reinforced with drugs and whiskey, they set out on a bloody partnership. On February 22nd, 1979, Rusty murdered his first victim in order to steal his coin collection. He then entered a nearby house at random where he, alongside his father figure, shot a couple in cold blood. They continued on to to Pauly's Island, where they robbed a store and kidnapped the two lady clerks. After raping them, Rusty shot both of them. One of the women lived and functions today without her lower face intact. Rusty and Scar finished their night in Myrtle Beach at a motel where police finally closed in. Scar shot himself. Rusty was taken into custody and confessed to it all. Still high, but now descending into the horror that clear-mindedness brings, his soul disintegrated as he contemplated the works of his hands. He was easily found guilty and sentenced to death in the South Carolina electric chair. In April of 1980, All appeals had run their perfunctory legal course 
As the electrician fitted Rusty's head and limbs with the electrodes, the warden asked Rusty had he any last words. He thought for a moment and then said simply, I'm terribly sorry for what I have done. Jesus Christ is my Savior. My only wish is that everyone in the world could feel the love I have felt from him. The death hood was placed over his head. 10,000 volts of electricity surged to their target. Rusty's body collapsed into death. As darkness fell off of Rusty, he stepped into light, there to fully encounter the arms that had been holding him daily in his earthly prison cell. When you read stories or hear stories like the one I just read, are you, like me, at first awakened to your rage against such horrible evil and an understandable demand rises up in you for, quote, justice? And then as you continue to hear the story, and you find out who 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 is this monster who you're longing to see executed well from god's point of view he's not just the monster about to be executed or the suffering demonized cadaver in the cell covered by roaches god sees also the little blonde-headed fatherless boy who has already suffered the ravages of abuse before he's old enough to to get out on his own. God sees all of that. And unless we desire to learn to see with God's eyes, we are in grave danger of manifesting uh, uh, the same spirit that put our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. The spirit of the Pharisee that is more interested in outward appearance of righteousness without any concern for true righteousness. Many years ago, I was closely related, though I was not personally directly involved, I was closely related to a story that finally became nationally publicized in Texas regarding uh, the execution of a woman in the Texas state prison. The reason that her story was so widely known and so controversial was because she had been incarcerated just like Rusty was. She was a murderer. Under the power of drugs and demonic influence, she had uh, killed someone with a pickaxe. The time of her execution came But between the time of her arrest and the time of her execution, she was led to Christ by people who I was closely acquainted with. And over the years, for there was a delay in her execution, something that was rather unusual in Texas, but there was a delay. And in that delay, she evangelized most of the women in her prison block. Not only did she evangelize them, she pastored them. She discipled them. As she was being discipled, she would pass on the the truths that she was learning. And so by the time uh, her execution date approached, there were many appeals to the governor's office for a stay of her execution. 
citing the fact that she was a transformed person. But you see, Javert doesn't care about the transformation of people because the law of the spirit of death and uh, the law of sin and death only operates in the law of uh, accusation and legalism. Satan, Javert, Phariseeism, operates in the realm that, that is only satisfied with the shedding of blood and there's never enough blood shed to satisfy the command, the demand. And when, when one finally came whose blood was so precious that his blood could outweigh any sin, then Satan lost his power. That's why we overcame the, we overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. We overcome the accuser of the brethren by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. What do we we testify? We testify to the accuser what the blood of Jesus has done for us so there is no more place for accusation against us unless we refuse to give that same mercy to those we have accusation against. And so Jesus says very plainly, not angrily, just stating reality. If you don't forgive the way you have been forgiven, God your Father will not forgive you. That doesn't mean God is going to hold bitter resentment against you. It simply means that the law of the spirit of death is operating in you toward those you won't forgive, and so the law of death will be operating in you. And so God holds that reality in place because it simply is reality. One of the painful memories I have of the time of this story I'm telling you about in Texas was that on the day of her execution, she was executed, obviously, and on the day of her execution, there were many, many people outside the prison, some singing and worshiping and praying for her, but many, many others shouting curses and making statements about how, how it was good riddance and time for her to go to hell. Uh, and she could roast forever in hell for what she had done and all this devilish stuff. Now, only God knows who's who. And uh, I would like to think that those who were making those statements never knew Christ and never claimed to know him. But I've grown up in the Bible Belt, and I've been around it for over 60 years, and I know I know Texas Bible Belt religion pretty well. I know that there's many wonderful, real Christians there, and I know that there's many others who might have been out there in that group claiming to believe in the gospel, claiming to embrace the cross, claiming to believe that there is no sin that cannot be forgiven. There is no pit so deep that Christ has not descended more deeply in order to bring us up out of that pit in resurrection power. There might be people who claim to believe that and yet still found themselves justified in their own eyes by standing outside the prison and, and calling for her blood to satisfy their concept of justice. I would hate to be such a person. But 
I have been such a person at times in my life that I, I, I too, too numerous to count. I've been guilty of even, if, even if just only for a moment, I've been guilty of participating in that same kind of lower level justice. This is, this is my greatest appeal to us in this final hour as we bring to a close this study that we've been doing on righteousness and justice. Are we going to be people who live in the political realm of the law of sin and death? You can find scripture to support the law of sin and death. You can be Javert. You can be the satanic legalist, the the court-appointed, self-appointed accuser and legalist and executioner. Or you can remember that we overcome the devil, the accuser, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. What is it that we testify to? We testify to what the blood of Jesus has done for us. And we testify what the blood of Jesus has done for our enemies. And we forgive our enemies. And we operate in the law of life, which supersedes the law of sin and death. I hope that if you don't get anything else out of the hours that we've spent wrestling through these rather difficult subjects, and you do realize we've barely touched the the surface of it, but uh, we did the best we could with what we had to work with. But let me just tell you one more story in closing that I hope will better illustrate this than me trying to teach on it anymore. Also in Texas, Mary and I, one of our favorite churches in the whole world is uh, at that time was in College Station, uh, in Texas. And uh, it was a spirit-filled, powerful church right at the gate of uh, Texas A&M University. And we were there on several occasions, uh, and it was a wonderful church. It was a place where uh, there was all kinds of life, and uh, they would they would sing a Bach choral work, and then they'd go right out of that into a, a Andre Crouch uh, uh, foot stomp and uh, spiritual. And uh, I, I remember they had a baptistry made out of a coffin. And they would wheel the they'd wheel the waterproof coffin in and do their baptisms. <laughs> um, our first Sunday there, they had a baptism. They had a, 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 a wedding, and they had the Lord's table. And uh, somewhere in there, I preached. It was full of life, many races, many different backgrounds. I miss that church and love it very much. But on one Sunday morning. Uh, we were there, and there was there was a painting up on a a, a platform, uh, almost life size portrait of Christ in a cruciform form. You couldn't see anything but his body, and it was surrounded by utter black darkness. And it it was painted in such a way that the darkness seemed to be being absorbed into the very body of the one uh, in the painting. I looked at the pastor with wonder. He could see the wonder on my face, and he, I said, "Is this is this a, a reproduction of a Rembrandt or something? It's just a magnificent painting." He said, "No, I'll have to tell you about it after the service. It's a long story." 
Well, I preached. We had communion. The service ended. And then uh, Terry said to me, this painting has a, an important story behind it. He said, not, uh, not too long ago, a, a woman in our neighborhood who's known by many people and loved by many people was uh, robbed by two brothers. They broke in on her store as she was closing and they robbed her and killed her. They were soon apprehended. The, the, the trial was short. There was not a lot to debate about it. Both of these brothers were sentenced to death by execution. And uh, I was contacted by the mother of these young men and asked that, that would I go and, and pray with them and minister to them. He said, I went to the older of the brothers and uh, I prayed with him, led him to Christ, baptized him in his cell, and then soon after did his funeral. The following uh, execution of the other brother was soon to take place, but he would not see me. He wouldn't let me come. And uh, when he finally was executed, I went with his mother to retrieve his belongings. And when we got to his cell, this painting was part of his belongings. He had written us a letter, and it said this. Please know that I was not trying to reject you. I just couldn't face you. But I faced him. Speaking, of course, of the Lord Jesus. He said, please know that I have faced him. And I have received his grace and forgiveness. And this painting is just my way of commemorating what he did for me. The painting was remarkable in its exquisite beauty and its expertise of accuracy. It takes, it takes a, a remarkable talent to achieve the, the, the imagery of black darkness being absorbed by the body of the one on the cross, which is exactly theologically accurate. But the most wonderful thing about all this was Terry looked at me by this time with tears in his eyes and tears in our eyes. And he said, you might have noticed today during communion, the last people to be gathered around the communion table. They were the family of the murdered woman and the family of the murderers taking communion together at this altar. And then he said this, I'll never forget it. He held up three fingers and he said, three dead bodies. And then he made the symbol of zero with his forefinger and his thumb. <clears throat> and he said, three dead bodies and then zero death. Three dead bodies, but zero death. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus salvaged the murdered woman and salvaged her murderers and they are three dead bodies on the level of the earthly horizontal shadowlands plane 
but on the realm of ultimate reality, they are fully alive for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made them free from the law of sin and death. There was justice done in that story. It was not the justice of the Texas courts. It was not even the justice of enraged, understandably enraged citizens who wanted an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. No, the justice was just, just mercy. Father, I pray for every one of us, myself first of all. I pray, Lord, that you will remove out of me and out of any other person listening who wants it any lower level justice thinking that would in some way supersede the law of the spirit of life in such a way that we would be inadvertently thinking we're standing for what's right and just only to find on the day of retribution of all things and restoration of all things that in our self-righteousness we were hindering true justice by demanding lower level justice. Make us people of the cross, truly. Make us people of the cross for whom the law of the spirit of life has completely overcome the law of sin and death. And let that be true for us on national and international levels and in personal levels, in family relationships and friendships and in our own private lives with you, Lord. Make us people of just mercy. In Jesus' precious name, amen.